I'm Adam Spencer, and in this episode of Challenger Chats, I'm joined by Matt Grecksmith, co-founder and co-CEO of the experiential hospitality brand Swingers. In it, we deep dive into the development of the Swingers concept at a time where the phrase competitive socialising hadn't yet hit the hospitality lexicon, and we also cover the pressures on the management team during their process of raising capital from Kane International, Swingers discerning use of technology to enhance the in-venue customer experience, and the imminent launch of the Swingers brand in the good old United States of America. So dial up the volume, kick back and enjoy. So it's without further ado that I'd like to introduce Matt Greg-Smith, co-founder and co-CEO of Swingers. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. So, uh, so Matt, when we first met back in 2017, you had one venue in the city of London delivering some knockout numbers, and you had a second London site secured and being fitted out in the West End. And all that you and your co-founder, Jeremy, could talk about was how huge the opportunity was in the US. So fast forward three years, and you've made some pretty transformational leaps forward as a business in the face of everything that's been going on. But before we dive into all of that and your plans for global domination, uh, for those that are listening that haven't been to a Swingers before, uh, can you please tell us a little bit about um, what the experience is like and uh, what Swingers is? So I think, uh, obviously, it's called Swingers, and it's important to explain what that is. Uh, The swinging reference is uh, Crazy Golf. So our kind of tagline is Crazy Golf, Cocktails and Street Food. And we take over large spaces um, in city centres, usually around 20,000 square feet. um, And we have two or three crazy golf courses, uh, which is obviously a fun, nostalgic activity. But we've recreated it for the more grown up market and we'll bring you cocktails while you play from our excellent bars. And our food is uh, from really exciting up and coming restaurateurs. We wanted to make it a much better alternative to the food offer that you often get in uh, leisure venues. And so we work with the likes of Patty and Bun and Pizza Pilgrims and Bredo's Tacos in London um, to give you a really great food offer. So all combined, it makes a fantastic immersive experience that's great, whether you're going on a date, you're out with some friends or perhaps going out with work for some kind of client or team event. And we have two locations, as you said, in central London and are busy working on some more elsewhere. And we will dive into all of those a bit later on. And and Matt, you you explaining the swingers concept to me again. Yeah, I'm I'm obviously quite uh, familiar with, uh, with with the concept, been to your sites many times, but oh, I just I just dream of the days where we can, we can get back and and into a swingers and tuck into a patty and bun. It's uh, we're we're, yes, we're recording this down in a yeah we're recording this in the in the midst of lockdown three and in, in the middle of deepest darkest winter uh, in the uk so it's uh, yeah, a pretty pretty dire place to be at the moment but uh really excited to get back get back to your venues matt you're obviously talking about a we there um uh, obviously you you have a co-founder jeremy and your journey with um with jeremy started well before swingers so can you take us back a couple of decades and talk through how you got into the hospitality game well yeah when you say a couple of decades that makes it sound really old <laughs> um we actually can't remember how long we've been working together um, we think we must be coming up to about 20 years now, but um, we met uh, when we were both at university. I was in Manchester and Jeremy was in Leeds and we were both running separate club night music event businesses, um, essentially where we were running weekly events for students in those respective cities. And we ended up working together. We 
And as a result of working together over a couple of years, we ended up putting our businesses together and growing one big student club night business, uh, which was called Rough Hill. And that over time, we grew to running about 25 events all around the UK every single week. About a million people a year would come to our events. And we started doing quite a lot of youth marketing uh, because we had these uh, teams in all of the cities, these youth teams in these cities around the country. And so youth marketing at the time was seen as a bit of a dark art. Social media hadn't really taken off in the way that it has now. And so brands would come to us and say, can you help us to reach the youth market? So as a result of that, we came to the attention of a big uh, London advertising agency called VCP, which was part of uh, Chime PLC. And they bought us and brought us in-house. And there we carried on running our student and youth events, but also started doing all of their experiential um, stuff as well and doing a load of youth marketing. So we've been on quite a journey and that journey took us all the way up to leaving the agency and starting out on swingers. But we've got very complementary skill sets and we obviously get on really well and work together well. So it's been a very long and productive relationship. And when you left the agency, did you did you leave with the with the view that you, you wanted to do a, a swingers type concept, was that always in mind or, or did you leave with a, um, a with an open book um, and seeing what opportunities were going to come about? How, how did that kind of evolve? It was really interesting because we'd been on this kind of long journey where we'd run our own business, which was doing these kind of youth events. And so we knew the nightlife market really, really well. And then we'd spent time in the agency and that had massive, massively professionalised us. And we'd learned a huge amount sitting on this senior management team of a big ad agency. Um, but we'd also been doing all of their experiential work. So working for the likes of Coca-Cola and McDonald's to bring brands to life. And the whole time we were doing these projects, we were faced with brands who were coming to us saying, we need you to bring our brand to life offline. And we need you to create an experience and it was really the start of the experience economy that we were seeing. And so when we kind of wound up our time in the agency, we had you know, a really good couple of years there, but we were looking to get back to being entrepreneurial again and start something new. And our experience was nightlife and the start of the experiential economy. So it dovetailed really nicely. And we had this idea, what if we were to create uh, a venue where you could go and play crazy golf but with great food and great cocktails and wrapped up in a really kind of premium way and it felt like it had legs so it all just went from there and had that never been done before because obviously crazy golf has been around for you know <laughs> for as long as people can remember um i'm i'm surprised no one had kind of you know come up with this kind of idea before no i mean amazingly not it's i guess that's the beauty of the idea it's so simple and then when we put the idea into practice no one could quite believe it hadn't been done like you say there were a few crazy golf courses dotted around the world who were doing it in maybe some form you know where you could get a drink while you played and that sort of thing but no one had ever done it where they kind of created this immersive quite premium venue in a city center 
um, did great cocktails, brought in sort of restaurant brands. So yeah, we we kind of hit on something quite big and with a lot of momentum. And yeah, it was very fortuitous. It was, it was the start of a big runaway train, essentially. So the name Swingers then, Matt, um, is that something that you always kind of had in mind? Or did you go through a few different iterations before you landed on something that's a little bit kind of, you know, a little bit cheeky? No, it just came up quite early in the process when we were, we'd, we'd had the idea to do a venue like Swingers where we, it would be crazy golf, but done in a brand new way for the grown up market. And Swingers was the first, one of the first names that came up and it was sort of a working title to start with. But it, we rapidly realised it's sort of the perfect name for, for it insofar as it quite neatly encapsulates what we do. It piques your interest, it makes people laugh and it's a name that you never really forget. So it definitely at times has come across a bit risque and there's been a few planning committees who have raised their eyebrows when it's come across their desk um, on some kind of application. And we have some internal guidelines where we talk about how we use swingers. We basically say, we've made the joke. It's a pun on how you uh, move a golf club and on wife swapping, essentially. So we don't make the joke anymore. It's very easy to go down a slippery slope where you're talking about putting balls in a hole and all that sort of thing. And it gets a bit smutty quite quickly. So we, yeah, we have a brand guideline where we say the joke has been made. You don't need to make it anymore. So you have the, you have the brand, you have the format, you have the idea in your head. How do you go about making it happen? Well, that's a good question. I mean, we had had this idea and we basically went round our peer groups, chatting to all our friends saying, we've got this idea to do this venue. We'll bring you, cocktails while you play crazy golf and then you can have an amazing burger afterwards would you come to it and bearing in mind that we've been in an advertising agency before that where we were constantly trying to pitch ideas and convince clients and more often than not they wouldn't be particularly enthusiastic and suddenly we had this idea where people were like oh my god yes i would definitely go to that that sounds really fun so it was so universal we knew it had legs and so we decided we wanted to test it by doing a pop-up. And so slightly cutting a long story short, but we found this really cool site, which is a warehouse in Shoreditch, which was normally used as as an event space for sort of one or two day events. And we managed to secure a five month lease on it. And we put together a pop-up and I guess we approached it in the way that we would approach an event, except this event was going to last for five months instead of one evening. So we were lucky that we had a contact book that really worked for us. We you know, knew uh, set builders and we knew alcohol brands and we knew food brands like Patty and Bun and Pizza Pilgrims through the work we've been doing. So we were very fortunate to end up in a position where we knew what we wanted to do. And we were able to bring in um, all of the relevant parties to make it happen. And we launched this pop-up in September 2014. And it kind of went crazy. Don't mind me asking, what was the the CapEx budget for for the pop-up? It was about £250,000. So it wasn't cheap um, by any stretch. But, you know, we were taking a 7,000 square foot space 
and it had to have a golf course. It had to have um, street food areas with ventilation. We had to build bars um, and a cellar. So it was all temporary, but it had to last for a reasonable amount of time and it had to look good and it had to be fully compliant and health and safety and all that sort of thing and hygiene. So yeah, it was at the time a not inconsiderable investment. Yeah. Were you taking uh, were you taking ticket book, uh, ticket bookings up front? Um, did that help with the kind of funding aspects of it? Yeah, we're lucky with our model in that we sell advanced tickets. We You can either book online um, as a uh, member of the general public or you can book as a group through our sales team or you can turn up on the day. But um, that those advanced sales are a big part of how we work. And so, yeah, we were getting funding coming in, um, but also... We were lucky because we had this background working around bars and venues. We knew lots of alcohol brands, so we were able to attract sponsorship for what we were doing. And so we um, had sponsorship from Gentleman Jack, the whiskey brand, and from uh, Fresnay, uh, the Carver brand. So that really helped. And we did a sort of seed funding round with a very select group of uh, friends, each of whom put some money in um, alongside us, but they also kind of brought something to the table in terms of through their professional life, um, they were able to help us in some way. So whether it was um, expertise in operations or property, or it was, we kind of assembled a small team of people who weren't just uh, investors, but they could also be advisors um, in the early years of our growth. And I imagine have those brand associations there um, before you launch. So with Gentleman Jack and Patty and Bun, brands that are already well known that have a coolness factor just helps with that kind of credibility as you're you're going out marketing this. Yeah, we were definitely leveraging other people's brands and that really helps. And so, yeah, when we went out and said, you know, we've got this new concept, we're insured it, you can have a Patty and Bun burger and you can have a great cocktail and you can play crazy golf. Um, it kind of melted our website because people were like yes i like doing all of those things so um i want to come along and and what did you do to get people through the door and, and build that that buzz and awareness before you launched i mean it was a, a, a weird time because we were launching a concept that was brand new and into a fairly crowded marketplace and we had to make sure that we were spotted and people were aware of our existence and we're going to buy tickets but I think that one of the key things we did was we um, we actually, in our co-working space that we were using before we launched, we were sharing a desk with um, The Nudge, which is a very popular London listings website for those that don't know. And I guess it's, it's very membership focused and it's known for um, bringing the best new experiences to its members. So it has a very devoted membership base. And they helped launch us we said to them you can um you can sell tickets um to our pop-up before anyone else does we'll give you the link um 24 hours before it goes on on general sale and so your members um will get first opportunity to buy and they said okay fine um but have you checked your website hosting because our user base is quite uh dedicated and they will go for this. And we were like, yeah, don't worry, it'll be fine. Yeah, we've, we've, we've got website hosting. What are you talking about? So they sent a newsletter out the next day. And I think it went to about 15,000 people, which it, of and in itself would have been absolutely fine. But it turned out that 
our offer really spoke to people. And those 15,000 people forwarded it, turns out another 140,000 times to their friends saying, OMG, we should do this. And in turn, our website crashed and the phones went crazy with people who were either halfway through a transaction that hadn't been able to complete or wanted to buy tickets but couldn't get through. And I remember Jeremy and I sitting around my kitchen table, slightly with our head in our hands, because all our plans have been what happens if nobody knows about what we're doing. And in the end, too many people knew about it. And we couldn't get the website working. We couldn't take their money. So it was a very stressful couple of days, but we got up and running and uh, managed to sell out pretty much for the whole run. So it was a nice problem to have, but a problem nonetheless. <laughs> and as you were kind of thinking about building out Swingers and um, uh, building out the concepts and the bar experience and the food experience, uh, was there or is there an operator out there that you admired and wanted to emulate or or a business hero that you take inspiration from as you uh, as you're thinking about building teams and building business um that's a good question i mean we had never been particularly we it never been our intention to get into hospitality in this way when we'd been running rough hill which was the club night business we kind of thought we had the perfect business model because we would go into these bar venues and with relatively low overheads we would use their infrastructure to do our business, but we got to leave again. So we weren't, we didn't have the rents and the massive wage bills and those worries that come with when a venue's hot and then when it starts to become less hot. So we'd always kind of said, why would you run that kind of venue? Um, <laughs> we think we have the perfect formula, but you know, you, your perceptions change and we'd, just were seemingly very drawn to the hospitality world and entertainment and that kind of experiential side of things. And so I guess it wasn't that much of a surprise when we then did find ourselves starting to open venues. And so because we've never had um, that very conscious goal, I don't know that we were particularly looking to emulate anyone, but I don't know if it's a cliche answer. So I think Nick Jones in the kind of around that time, you know, all through um, the early years of Soho House, it was such an exciting business where it was someone who was reimagining hospitality and doing it in a different way. And also it was a very creative process. You could see that he and people in his team were having ideas, whether it was a burger brand or a beauty parlor or a hotel. And then they were putting them into action. And so it was incredible to sort of watch someone who had built this brand and built this infrastructure and then could kind of do anything they wanted. So I think, yeah, we used to use the venues a lot and they were felt very cool and very exciting. And yeah, I'd definitely be lying if I said that that wasn't, if not necessarily a direct influence, it was certainly very inspiring to, to see. So your pop-up site opens five months worth of trading. Uh, how did that go? Uh, was it? Um, did you turn back, look back, and think that was a that was a pretty good success? Pat, pat on the back there. Yeah, I mean, I would say I would always be slightly cautious about patting ourselves on the back too much, but yeah, it was a really worthwhile exercise because it was the first time we got to run swingers and. There was no model there and no mechanism for going to a venue and playing crazy golf. 
you know, if you go bowling or you go ice skating, there is a format where you know exactly how your experience is going to pan out. And for the crazy golf, we basically had to invent that. So we invented a system and by and large, it worked really well. We, the most of it got carried through to the permanent venue. I mean, I think there were a few things that we changed over time. We sort of realized that there was, well, A, that the business was completely viable, which was the biggest plus, but we realized that corporate business could be a huge part of it, which was something um, that we hadn't really factored in the first time, but we were getting lots of law firms and banks that wanted to come to it. And we realized that we needed to specifically cater for them. Um, But yeah, as I say, overall, it was pretty successful. It was a good first run out. There were definitely glitches, but what we then went on to open in our first permanent site wasn't massively different. It was just bigger, better, and more polished but it still have the same sort of nucleus. And that kind of realisation of the concept being very interesting for corporate market, for entertaining, for team building, is that why you chose the city um, as your, your location, as a location for your first permanent site? Uh, no, not at all. We knew that having been in this 7,000 square foot space, we wanted something bigger. We wanted to, we only had one course. We wanted to do at least two courses we wanted more food vendors, we wanted more space for corporates. And so this was 2015 that we were looking, and the market was very different to what it is now. And we needed 20,000 square feet all in one room. And so at the time, we went site hunting, and we saw two sites, one which was completely unsuitable, it wasn't really one open room. And probably would have just been suitable to become a gym or something like that. And then we saw the site in the city that we ended up taking. So it was never our intention to end up there. And we had to do quite a lot of soul searching about whether the city was the right location at the time, because it wasn't seen as a destination then in the way that it is now. The NED wasn't open. Um, It wasn't somewhere really that people were going out on weekends. But we reasoned that the site we were looking at right by the Gherkin was a 10 minute walk from Liverpool street. You're very close to Shoreditch and that the, what we were building could become a destination that would attract people and take them slightly out of their way. Uh, we weren't about taking passing footfall. We were about getting people to book and come to us and go out of their way to come to us. And very fortunately, that's what happened. Clearly that, that first, that first permanent site, you know, you're, you, t- you talk about, you know, hospitality, um, you know, being, um, a, a risky market, you know, you're taking on the, the risks of a big lease, you're taking on the risks of employing loads of people, uh, you're taking on risks of, um, you know, someone slipping and falling downstairs in your venues. How do you get yourself kind of, you know, comfortable with that kind of transition into pop up to write, um, you know, a long-term lease in a, in a permanent site? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think a lot of the things that you're talking about, we were already dealing with in the pop-up. So what you actually are taking on is, yeah, a longer lease and it's all a bit more permanent. And I guess we just seen the power of the pop-up and we saw how much interest there was in what we were doing. So it just, it felt like a, not a no-brainer, but it felt like a very obvious 
choice to go on and do this. So I guess you have to believe in your product and have to back yourself at that stage. So I don't think we were racked by kind of self-doubt as we went into it. I think the biggest thing at that stage is we'd found this site and it was an amazing deal. And it was somebody looking to offload the lease fairly quickly. And the deal was only going to stay on the table for a very short period of time. And the site didn't have planning permission or an alcohol license, but we had to sign the lease before we could get both of those things. So we took a massive punt and it's not something I would ever advise, but it was the state of the market at the time. There just weren't these sites out there. And we knew that if we didn't take this site then and try and get the planning permission and the license, which we had a reasonable degree of confidence about, but we might not get to open for another year or two or three. And by then things could be very different. So we did a lot of soul searching and we signed the lease and luckily everything started into place, but I don't think that's the sequence of events that we would ever use again in the future uh, when taking on a new location. And I think that's the mark of a, a, I find it's fascinating, the mark of a kind of a true entrepreneur is taking those, those calculated risks, you you call it a punt, it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a big personal risk. And it's one that, you know, has a relatively high chance of um, failure. But, you know, the most successful entrepreneurs I come across are those that have taken those risks and have, have made it work. And, and as you say, you know, hopefully it's something you only do once you get over and then you, know, you, can, you can manage that risk appropriately going forward. I think it was a calculated risk in terms of we wouldn't have done it if we didn't believe that there was a good chance all was, all was going to come good. And the upside far outweighed the downside. So yeah, it wasn't a, it, it wasn't full of risk. It was it wasn't how you should definitely do these things, but I think, or I'd like to think lots of people would do the same thing in the same situation. Maybe I'm completely wrong. So your first site, your first permanent site hits the ground running and some, and so what was going through your head after the first few months of the first site opening? Um, you obviously weren't sat there thinking, you know, job done, let's just sit on this and run it for cash. No, I think we always knew that we wanted more than a sort of a lifestyle business that was going to, just make us a solid income. We've always thought fairly big. And, you know, when we did our rough hill business, we again could have done a similar thing, but we grew the business and grew the business until we could sell it. And I think we were conscious that we could have a similar approach with swingers. So yeah, we, from fairly early on, when when Swinger City had opened, not only were we looking for other locations in London uh, because we were constantly sold out, but we were flying to New York and starting to look at the US market because we knew we just had this incredible concept that was really resonating with people and there wasn't anything else out there, um, as we've already said. So we were just aware there was this huge opportunity out there Um, And we wanted to start making inroads into quantifying it and putting business plans together and working out where it could go. So, yeah, when I look back, it seems crazy that we were already jumping on the plane to New York and going out and talking to real estate agents. But it has probably stood us in good stead over time. 
Cool. So your second site, this time in the West End, um, an equally large, if not larger footprint than the uh, than your city site. So how do you go about selecting that site and um, how, how do you go about funding it? I mean, yeah, the capex and lease commitment on a 20,000 square foot site, a stone's throw from Oxford Street Station, that can't have been cheap. No, we were, we've been trading in our city location for probably six or seven months. And it was becoming very clear that the level of demand was way more than we could um, service uh, from that one site. So we were already very conscious that there was massive potential to do a second location in London. And because our city location is obviously central east, we really wanted to find somewhere central west, which would mean the West End. But that's you know, a very well-known area with massive rents, and it was always going to be very difficult to get in there, particularly with the property market as it was then. And then we found out that the site where BHS had been until about a year beforehand when it had gone into administration was being carved up and there was an opportunity there. So for those that don't know, the old BHS flagship is on John Prince's Street, which is one block west along um, Oxford Street from Oxford Circus. And it was formerly on two floors, each floor about 40,000 square feet and a big retailer called Reserved had taken the entire ground floor. And then the first floor had been carved into two units. And so there was the opportunity for us to take 20,000 square feet. So we wouldn't have any street frontage per se. We'd have a front door and a small vestibule, uh, but you take the stairs up and then there's 20,000 square feet right close to Oxford Circus, which had formerly been, I think, the staff canteen and the customer cafe. So we were going to put it to slightly more exciting use. And yeah, we loved the space. It was very different to the city space. The ceilings were lower, but it was bigger. Um, and yeah, we kind of went for it. It was it didn't need a huge amount of thinking about. We were lucky that the business was throwing off cash and we had access to increased bank borrowing. So we were able to facilitate the fit out um, fairly in a very straightforward manner. And that opened in March of 2018. And that just went crazy in the same way that our city location had. So we'd gone very quickly from launching our city business in May 2016 to then 18, 20 months later, having a second location in the West End which doubled us in size. So yeah, at this point, we all our forecasts and expectations have been completely blown out of the water, which was a really nice position to be in. Sounds like a relatively smooth, smooth journey. But were there any big mistakes that you made along the way where you look back and thought, wow, what were we thinking then? I mean, we must have made lots and lots of mistakes as we went. But there's nothing that I look back on and think, oh my word, that was cataclysmic. What were we doing? We put the business in peril. Uh, I will never do that ever again. I think I think by nature of what we do for a living, we are basically problem solvers. And so definitely things would have gone wrong and cropped up. And it's, I guess, more about how you deal with those things and how you learn from them. And... Yeah, so I don't look back and think we made some huge, hugely fundamental errors. And we were lucky because we had had the pop-up and then we'd had our city location. So we were very much learning and adapting as we went along. But 
yeah, we've it's it's been a huge learning curve all the way along. And when I look back at what we know now versus what we knew then, we're in a fundamentally different position. So, yeah, nothing that I can regale you with right this time, but. No, oh, you're not giving me anything to work with, Matt. Um, so uh, clearly, the business has grown at you know, to some scale now. Um, you know, two fifteen, twenty thousand square foot sites obviously need a significant team to to support it. And um, obviously, you know, the with your your growth plans in the US that we'll we'll cover later on. Um, you know, some some more consideration in terms of you know building out team and key people. Um, so throughout the last kind of you know two three years, what have been the kind of key hires in in your eyes that you thought you've simply couldn't get wrong i mean hiring is probably one of the most challenging parts of the business and as you say it's something you've got to get right i think the venues are quite straightforward in that they have a very clear structure so um it's quite straightforward you know that they need general managers and assistant general managers and it all cascades down from there i think it's harder figuring out what to who to hire for the head office and when to do it and i think as an entrepreneur you're always tempted to run as lean as possible and do as much as you can yourself and save cost but you get to a point where you realize that you have to think bigger and if you're going to achieve your ambitions and get the business to some kind of scale then you're going to have to hire because you can't do it all on your own and I did you know when we first started I did the marketing for the venue completely on my own as well as my other kind of responsibilities for about the first year before I hired anyone. Now we have a team of three people that work full-time alongside me on on that marketing function. So I don't know how I did it, but you kind of start to crack under pressure and you realise that there's the need for resource. And although your costs are going to go up, actually what you can achieve as a business... um, the the scale of that changes. So we do have a bigger team now. It's obviously had to contract a bit under um, through the recent pandemic, and that's been really challenging. But we, the people we have are fantastic, and we place a massive um, emphasis on culture and personality fit. And we would rather find the right person for a role and train them into it. Uh, than find somebody who perhaps has done it before, but their personality is not quite right. And so all along the way, there's you don't want to get any any job role wrong when you're hiring. But the more senior you go, obviously, the more impact it has. GMs, for example, in the venues, they shape the product that you deliver on the ground. Sales directors shape how we're interfacing with our corporate clients our people director has a huge impact on our team and their happiness. And then you go to our CFO and our COO who are, have hugely impactful jobs on the business. So you can't get any of them wrong, really. And it's something we're continually working on, bringing new people in and making sure the team runs really, really smoothly. And and thinking about your role and 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 Jeremy, your your co CEO's role, uh, I've I've worked with a number of co CEOs in the past, and I'm all, I'm always intrigued by how the dynamic works in practice, kind of on a day to day basis in terms of sharing responsibility, decision making, um, and there's a school of thought that ultimately there needs to be one person where the buck stops, and that having two CEOs um, 
has the potential to be confusing for the teams that they lead um, and may lead to inefficient decision making. Um, or equally, I've seen these kind of um, leadership teams flourish. So how do you think about your role um, alongside the role of um, Jeremy? And what does that look like when you're dealing with stakeholders? So the bank, your investors, your landlords, your staff? Yeah, it's a good question. And um, we're very lucky, Jeremy and I, that we've worked together for so long. Like I said, it's nearly 20 years. So we know each other very, very well. We're able to communicate, I think, very effectively. Um, and we, like I said, we have these complementary skill sets, but we also di- differ. So we've divided our role up quite cleanly. So Jeremy heads up all commercial aspects of, that, of the business. So um, a lot of that surrounds new locations, um, working with the bank, uh, working with building contractors, uh, the legal and financial side of the business um, and sponsorship. And then my side of the business is sort of the experience. So overseeing our marketing function, um, everything that the consumer sees from the point where they might first come across us online. And then all the way through um, overseeing the operations for the experience that they have in the venue. Um, and then subsequently, so I'll oversee operations, HR and marketing. And so they're very kind of cleanly delineated and then as well as each of us overseeing our respective elements of the business, then we work together collaboratively on the CEO functions and we know when to consult each other and when we can, you know, work independently and make our own decisions. So I wouldn't have it any other way. I think it's a very demanding business. It can be quite lonely. And so we support each other um, a huge amount. And I think, being a sole CEO um, could be quite challenging. So I think it's a massive strength and yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. Yeah. And being a sole CEO, you know, sometimes quite a lonely place as well. can totally see that. But have there been occasions where you and Jeremy have disagreed on, on some of the big decisions or have you generally always come to some sort of consensus? Yeah, I can't think of anything where we've got to a point where we've had to action something and there hasn't been agreement. We'll definitely approach things differently from time to time and we'll have differing views. And then we know that we can communicate well enough that one of us will bring the other one round and we'll reach a point of consensus. So I think that's what makes the business run quite well is actually a lot of decisions that get made get subjected to this kind of evaluation process um so yeah no no massive falling as out or there's yeah i didn't want to do table tennis when he wanted to do crazy golf or anything like that <laughs> that's right um and clearly you came to a consensus on um uh, on next steps in terms of growth um and you've already mentioned the us um and my first thought about a uk brand going over to the us is that the US, you know, is a little bit of a graveyard and for uh, British brands and formats that have launched stateside but have failed because their formats either didn't translate across to a US audience or or actually management didn't really think hard enough about what the US audience actually wanted. Um, so what makes you guys think you'll be any different? Oh, well, there's a very uh, loaded question. I mean... <laughs> We did lots of soul searching about whether we wanted to expand further within the UK or perhaps go off to the US. 
Um, we have a model of what a swingers city looks like, and it includes lots of things like having a very high corporate density, an after-work drinking crowd, um, a street food scene, a dating culture, a public transport network um, that means that people can drink after work and won't be driving home, lots of things like that. And just in some ways, it felt that some of the other UK cities felt higher risk than the US, some US cities where there's they're very densely populated. And obviously, when you take the US as a whole, there's lots and lots of cities like that in a way that perhaps there aren't in the UK. And also, ultimately, it's an opportunity cost in terms of finances. Um, And then in terms of uh, the bandwidth of our team in that we could go to Manchester, or we could use that time and financial um, spend in going and building a business and being a first mover in the US. And so that's kind of what we decided. And yeah, we are aware that there are lots of brands that have been successful in doing this, but also lots of brands that haven't. And we have to go with huge humility. So we do our research. Um, we don't just sort of, we didn't just decide, oh, we really fancy going to New York. That'll be really fun. We really looked at whether our product will work. We have a US team, so although we are currently headquartered in the UK and the idea originated here, it's still going through that filter of people in the local market to shaping the, the products that will go out. And also, I just think we have the product we have is a great universal product in terms of, you know, it's the bar, it's the activity, it's food, it's really fun, it's pretty unique. And we just think it will translate there. It's not like we're taking something very niche and very British. We are taking something that we think has a massive universal appeal. And that that gives us confidence that it's going to resonate and do well there. And and will you see yourself kind of tweaking any aspects of, of the swingers experience? It sounds like a, a lot of it will be, you know, as it is in the UK. Yeah, I think, to be honest, the tweaking will occur back of house more than it will front of house. Um, in that the just the rules and the regulations and the laws and the taxes, even the way you buy alcohol is different in the US. So your systems and processes change in order to make sure you stay compliant and stay legal. But broadly speaking, our the product that our customers see will stay the same. I think we'll just change some of our language around it, obviously, to tailor it for the local market. We'll make sure that when we're bringing in food brands, we're working with local food brands. And yeah, like I said, I think that universe, universality, is that a word? That will, um, yeah, that will really help us. So we, we sense check everything we do and we're in no way arrogant that our product is arrives fully formed so we'll be making small tweaks but yeah like I say most of the tweaks will be back of house rather than front of house and when and where will you be launching well that is the $64,000 question and I'm afraid I can't give you that scoop right now Uh, we have talked about New York in the press and that is very much on the cards and coming soon we also have some other locations in the pipeline we will be making a big press announcement in at the start of March. So all will come clear then. Um, and I will make sure you 
are tuned into it and know exactly which Thank page you. of the newspaper to read when I, that I was, comes out. I was hoping for an exclusive there, but uh, clearly my hopes are dashed. But uh, I, I will be uh, keenly keeping an eye out for that press release. Uh, you should, and you can't should. wait to get over to the States and uh, check you out. I'm sure you're going to knock out the park over there. Um, so let, let's move on to um, uh, fundraising then in your fundraising journey, in particular um, uh, your um, your institutional investor. So when we first met, um, uh, it was in between your first site and your second site openings, uh, you were beginning to consider doing an institutional deal um, and thinking about bringing an advisor on board to help you do that. So how did you come to the conclusion that it was the right time uh, for you to be bringing on board an institutional investor, having only opened one permanent site? I think we were just getting our second site open and we knew that site number three was probably going to be in the US and that was had a big capital requirement so we knew a fundraise was going to be needed for that and also I think we just wanted to bring some firepower into the business we still had our friends who were forming they were making up our minority investors and we just got to the stage where we knew there was an opportunity um, they wanted to be taken out and we could bring someone in who could bring a load of experience um who worked in the US, but yeah, who could help capitalize us to do that. So it was a no brainer really at that point in time. And how did you find the kind of end-to-end fundraising process? Um, were there times that you were kind of tearing your hair out? Um, was there anything you would have would have done differently during that process? I mean, it's a really weird process, the kind of the fundraising process. I think the strangest thing is where you do the fireside chats where you're doing these chemistry meetings with these different companies. And so you're trying to get them on the hook and sell them on your enthusiasm and your story. And I mean, you'll know because you were there, but we sometimes were doing three of these a day. And I think we probably did 15 or so in total. And so, yeah, three times a day, Jeremy and I would be doing this routine where we would trot out our founder story and our aspirations of the business. And it became the most honed routine I mean you would have heard it so many times you could do the routine I think so (laughs) and then we'd go we'd do two in the morning and then we'd go for lunch and Ali who you work with he would look at us and be like oh my god why are you ordering pasta for lunch you're going to be sluggish this afternoon what are you doing and then we'd (laughs) order us a double espresso and make us drink it so that we were sparky in the afternoon so it was sort of about having a sports coach and you were having to do this regular performance and so yeah then you attract some interest and you hone down the number of suitors and it's obviously a stressful process and getting to the final stages and we got there in the end and then you realize you're actually only just starting on the whole process because then you've got due diligence and all of the um, negotiations and the legals so I think that probably the biggest learning graphs and people always say it and it's very difficult to avoid but it sucks the whole management team in for a long period of time and it's all you can focus on is you know replying to all of the inquiries and doing these negotiations and you it does distract you from the running of the business um, and it's very difficult to avoid that so my learning is you know for the future future transactions would be try not to lose that focus but that's it's a lot easier said than done 
I always find that is the most clearly the most stressful kind of part of um, of any process is that you know the the final stages where uh, you know advisors are over your every move um, you know every month of trading there's pressure and um, you know, you're stretched operationally and um, and you know uh, spending time on the process. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that'll help, but we'll hopefully find out next time. Yeah, yeah indeed, <laughs> you'll be better prepared next time. Hopefully, so you you ended up doing a deal with. Kane International. Um, so tell us a little bit about them as a as an investor uh, and why you chose them as your as your partner. Uh, they are a real estate investor and private private equity investor. Um, I think since 2016 they've deployed something like six billion dollars in real estate debt and equity, and they've got a growing um, private equity portfolio which includes um, the Albright, which is the uh, women's uh, women only membership club. Uh, Maslow's, which has Mortimer House, um, which is co-working and restaurant. They've got an amazing leisure complex called the St. James in the US, and they're uh, making other um, acquisitions as they go along. And they were great to uh, negotiate with. And in the early stages, you know, we just built up a level of trust with them. Um, They behaved really well. They did exactly what they said they'd do. They have a fantastic pedigree and experience where they've got a great track record in uh, the US and the UK. Um, They're clearly very entrepreneurial um, and have lots of business acumen, which helps us. And they are a property business. And deep down, that's what we are as well. We're about finding these big 20 to 30,000 square foot locations um, in the UK and the US. And that's where they that's you know their their home territory so they were great all the way through the process have been great um since they came on board um and they're a fantastic partner to work with you mentioned some of their investments um uh, most recently they've been in the news for acquiring the the italian restaurant chain prezzo i mean that's a brave deal isn't it in the in the current climate taking on a, a mid-market casual dining chain although the business is led by the legendary Karen Jones, and um, I'm sure we'll we'll do an amazing job at, um, uh, at uh, post COVID, um, yeah, reopening uh, Prezzo. But what, what's your take on that deal? I mean, I don't know a vast amount about the deal itself, but I know that Kane are massively shrewd, and they will have seen a huge opportunity in the business. Uh, my understanding is that pre-pandemic, the business was performing really strongly. And Kane are massive believers that the pandemic will end, that it's a finite period of time. So it's all about being poised for growth at that point. And as you say, Karen Jones uh, leads the business and Kane massively believe in backing founders and CEOs and their management teams uh, that they really believe in. So I'm sure that's what they've done with Karen and they'll make a massive success of the business. So let's move on to kind of customer experience and um you've um you've gone from running club nights back in um back in the early noughties and the heyday of dance music big venues uh to crazy golf premium cocktails again in in big venues and you've spent your career entertaining people on their nights out uh so what have been the biggest changes for you in that time in terms of what people expect from a night out and what people want to want to see when they're choosing a venue Um, I think experience, as I said before, has become absolutely a key. And there's no doubt that social media is a massive driver uh, with that. People 
want to be able to show off where they've been where they're going and they want to be able to put it on Instagram and for you know adds to their social capital if they can show they're going to be these great looking exciting places so that's been a huge thing for us um, and also I think there's been this sort of democratization in the food and drink world um, over the last few years where you don't have to pay top dollar in order to get really innovative and high quality products so you know street food is the obvious beneficiary of that people want to eat the best burger or the best pizza and now you can do that for between 10 and 15 pounds so i think those are definitely two very big themes um social media led experiences and that kind of democratization and that's where we've been really lucky that we've been able to capitalize and as well as the consumer, you also have their little friends, the smartphone to contend with, um, that are with them constantly. So how do you factor people's relationships with their phones into your thinking when you're designing what it's like to be in a swingers? Because the, the swingers experience is very, um, you know, pretty analog. Certainly pre-COVID, customers had to rely on pen and pencil to note scores down. Yeah, we believe that technology is an essential part of these nights out but it has to be used in exactly the right places so we bring tech in like you say on the scorecard if you want to you can use our online scorecard although loads of people love having the scorecard in paper form and using their little swingers pencil and actually even during the pandemic we provided a safe way for people to do that and people still love doing it then we've as a result of the pandemic we've um or we've introduced our web app so you can do at table ordering uh, for food and drink and that will stay that's been really successful so that will stay beyond the pandemic uh we harness social media within the venues as i said we make sure there's lots of instagram moments throughout including we have our 10 camera 3d photo podiums where you can get your picture taken um, it gives you this amazing animated MP4 and which you can put on social media and we get your data in exchange. Uh, and we're always looking at ways that technology can be better used to enhance the experience people have. But you're right, the, the crazy golf element of it is quite analog. And we are firm believers that that is the experience people want, especially when you take into account that a lot of people have spent the last year and probably best part of 18 months by the time we get to reopening sat at a computer having these conversations on Zoom and people are going to be pretty sick of screens and so people are going to want real life experiences and so we don't want too many uh, moments where you have to use a phone or there's screens all over the place flashing at you we want people to have real experiences so it's yeah we're constantly juggling that mix but we we think we're getting it just about right so matt we've we've now reached that time we've all been waiting for well i, I certainly have it's our quick fire round uh and we're going to throw a few short sharp questions at you and you're going to give us some short sharp answers back <laughs> okay hit me cool so let's start with an easy one london or new york uh i have to say london i do love new york and go there a lot but i'm always really happy to get back to london what's your favorite restaurant I mean, that is literally an impossible question and that should be banned <laughs> it because is. it all depends on what mood you're in and what you're looking for. But I, as I'd say, somewhere with buzz and lots of great food, I'd have to say my current favourite would be somewhere like Luca in Clerkenwell, which is amazing Italian food. You can either eat in the bar, which feels quite casual, or you can eat in the restaurant, which feels a bit more uh, grand. 
and it's worth mentioning they did they do a great at home kit which i had the other weekend and that's amazing so worth checking that out pool or beach um i'd take either right now yeah tell me about it. <laughs> um what's the most used app on your phone right now uh in normal times i'd say uber and trip it which is for keeping track of uh your flights and hotels but i'd say in these current times probably the guardian and the times for news or teams for staying in touch with colleagues burger pizza or tacos um well well done for identifying the swingers food mix it's really unfair to make me pick one but i'm gonna say burgers because it's the holy trinity of food bread meat and cheese can't beat it indeed uh, Rishi Sunak or Matt Hancock? Not a massive fan of either, but I guess I'd have to say Rishi for Eat Out to Help Out. Although if uh, Wet Lead could get a bit more of a look in next time, that would be much appreciated. Indeed, yes, please. And finally, working from home or in the office? Get me to the office ASAP. I cannot spend any more time at home. Amen to that. Um, so I guess this takes us on to the topic that no one wants to talk about, but unfortunately we're compelled to. It's coronavirus. Boo. Uh, can you talk us through the first few months of 2020, uh, where you were when you realised there was a problem brewing um, and um, what you what you did about it? Yeah, it was a weird start to 2020. I think um, January was a bit muted and a bit flat and then in February the rumours about coronavirus started sort of swirling around and we start to see we start to see corporate trade flatten out and then we got to March where Boris helpfully stood up and told people to stay away from pubs and bars without actually closing them and we saw the writing on the wall straight away and closed the business down and lo and behold the uh, executive order came not long after and the the rest of the industry that was still open um, shut down as well. And then it was a stressful few months, I'm not going to lie. There was a sort of an existential concern about, you know, how long is this going to last for? Will we make out of this? You know, how are we going to get through it? And I think we found some kind of equilibrium reasonably fast. The furlough scheme came along and we were able to furlough our staff. We did have to make some difficult decisions about how many people we could retain. Um, Luckily, we didn't have to cut too many because of government support. I mean, everyone knows what the rest of the year was like. It was open and closed a lot. There wasn't great visibility from the government and it made it really difficult to plan. We did a great trading period. I think it was July to, I I mean, I can't remember because it's been so bumpy, but I think July to October or something like that, we were open for a couple of months and obviously our capacity was reduced, but we sold out. People were desperate to come and have these kind of experiences and they weren't traveling, they weren't able to go away. And so we had amazing demand and that gave us huge confidence that the the market will return at the end of this and then we were back closed again we got to reopen towards the end of the year and by then the restrictions were absolutely ridiculous we had to do uh, we limited on group side group size it was the single household thing and then to cap it all off the substantial meal and that was obviously aimed at then restaurants and allowing them to open and trying to um, come down on wet lead venues and we struggled through it serving people but you know we people had to come in they had to eat then they got had to go to the crazy golf course and then we had to basically throw them out after because they couldn't go and sit back down again because 
we would have to make them eat. And then you're putting it, uh, your staff in a terrible position where they're having to force food down people's throats. So it was pretty tough. But all in all, we're pretty positive. We're going to come out of it fairly strongly. We know what we're doing. And I just hope that when we are allowed to reopen, there won't be too many restrictions in place. And has COVID kind of impacted your longer term strategy? Um, I think particularly in, in the US where um, where restrictions are, are kind of, you know, my understanding is they're more on a kind of state by state basis. Um, ha- have you had to kind of shift around your thinking in terms of site pipeline? Yeah, a little. I mean, overall, all that's happened is things have slowed down. It's got the our strategies got a bit more spread out. We've had to adjust all of our forecasts. But yes, we do have a location in the US that is pretty much ready to go. And we're not going to be able to trade it for another good few months. And we don't have clarity on when we will be able to open it. So um, that definitely makes things challenging. But I'd like to think we're going to come out of the COVID period and then we're going to hit the ground running because we've had all of this time to plan. Um, and actually, this the pandemic has created some opportunities in terms of uh, property that has become available. And um, swingers in, uh, I guess, pre-COVID times works fantastically well for a corporate night out. We talked about kind of team building and events and entertaining. I know historically it's been a you know an important market for you guys. So how quickly do you see the corporate market kind of coming back once restrictions start to relax? Um, or do you think that home working will will change the way that corporates look to bring their teams together and entertain their clients and prospects? Yeah, it's hard to say how quickly it'll come back. I think on the one hand, you've got lots of big brands who are very publicly stated they're not going to do events for a long time to come. On the other hand, we were getting event inquiries all the way um, through the last time we were able to open. And when there was all the um, confusion around whether business lunches were allowed, there were lots of people trying to book and come in with colleagues and to come and play. So I think the market will bounce back reasonably quickly. And I think even if people are working from home more than they they used to, I think employers are still going to want some FaceTime with their staff. So they are going to be bringing their staff into central London um, because they are going to want some face-to-face contact. And I think venues like ours where teams can get together, especially if they're not doing it a lot in the office, are going to become more important. People, it's going to become important that these teams bond and gel and socialize and we're going to provide somewhere for them to do that and so in in terms of the future then for for the sector in particular um you know if you if you're speaking to a young aspiring restaurateur or or bar operator you know uh, they might be looking at the impact of covid restrictions um you know the challenges the sector have faced and now think you know what this sector is too much like hard work and the rewards ain't big enough um i mean do you do you do you think the sector still has something to give for entrepreneurs and new entrants into the market? Yeah, I think, you know, this sector has always been difficult. And I would always have given anyone a note of caution that you have to come in and you have to make sure that you've got a good differentiated product and you've proven that there's an audience for it. And yeah, it is a difficult time to start a business, but I think there's probably going to be a load of opportunity as we come out of this. I think there's going to be uh, property deals to be had which you just wouldn't have found a few years ago. Landlords are going to be much more realistic. They're going to be more collaborative and supportive. So, yeah, you have to build your business plan really well and make sure, like I said, you've got a good product and you know you've got an audience. But, yeah, I think there will be great opportunities to find amazing sites on great deals. So 
yeah, I think we probably will see a whole new wave of entrepreneurs and innovation that, that comes through on the back of this. So, yeah, there's obviously been a lot of doom and gloom over the last 18 months. So let, let's try and end on a, on a positive note. What are you most looking forward to uh, in the next couple of years? I'd say enacting our plans. I think people think that we've been really quiet since 2018, which was when we opened our West End location in the first half of the year. And in the second half of the year, uh, we did our investment round. And then we've been quite quiet ever since. But actually, in that time, we've been working like crazy on structuring our business and uh, developing sites in the US. So big things are coming. We're Like I said, we're making an, uh, an announcement at the start of March. And so the next year, few years are going to be action-packed and very exciting. And we're just looking forward to getting on with it now. Watch this space. Well, Matt, thank you for your time. Uh, and thank you for being guest on Challenger Chats. No problem. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast please subscribe to any of our channels drop us a line or follow tamwheel capital on linkedin where you can carry on the conversation and engage on all things leisure hospitality wellness consumer and challenger thanks for listening <laughs>